Welcome to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast, a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, an integrative practice committed to expanding access to holistic root cause medicine to the global community. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Lee Frame join us. She is the Associate Director of the Residency and Wellbeing Center and the Assistant Professor in the Department of Clinical Research and Leadership at the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences right here in Washington, DC. She also has many other appointments and is the founding chair of the GW Microbiome Research Interest Group at George Washington University and has a special expertise in uh, both uh, clinical nutrition, but also vitamin D. So today we're gonna discuss the role with Dr. Frame here about vitamin D and its role, a really important role with the immune system and the microbiome. So if you have any questions about how vitamin D works and how to use it, this conversation is for you. Welcome Dr. Frame. Well, thank you so much. This is definitely one of my favorite topics. So I'm excited to nerd out on it with you. So excited to deep dive into this with you here. Lee, um, before we start with vitamin D, we just wanted to ask you a, a general question, which we generally ask our guests, which is um, in your background, you know, as a, as a researcher, as a PhD, integrative health, um, what motivated you to pursue research and inter- integrative health in general? Oh, great question. I actually had a personal experience, which I feel like is not uncommon in our field. People went through the traditional healthcare system and it didn't work out for them. Uh, I was one of those people. It took me 30 years of my life to get diagnosed with celiac disease. Uh, I went to every doctor. I had arthritis from the time I was seven, which is obviously not normal, but they couldn't figure out why I had it. So, well, it must just be something about you. And as you can imagine, I was a little frustrated by that answer. And that answer was not something I was willing to accept. So I took it upon myself to figure out what was wrong with me um, and started to to do a lot of um, sort of complementary therapies, thinking that maybe it'll help me. Um, I was seeing an acupuncturist and I will tell you, it was my acupuncturist who figured it out because he was willing to think about things in a slightly different way. Like maybe it could have something to do with your diet, which is now I think something that's much more of a mainstream concept. Um, But even 10 years ago was still pretty fringe. Oh, diet can't possibly lead to those type of syndromes. Um, But it does. And so that's what really motivated me to fully embrace integrative health because it can do a lot of things that Unfortunately, our standard healthcare system is not very good at. And that's life-changing, just knowing that there's a root cause and something you can do about it to really move that needle. Exactly. Rather than just continuing to treat my symptoms, which is what every other doctor had told me to do. Yeah. And I think that's very humbling too. We know that, you know, in traditional medicine, right, we kind of value the, the medical and this whole idea of like medical care, but, you know, all of the healthcare professionals, acupuncturists, massage therapy, physical therapy, chiropractic, nutrition, you know, integrative practitioners in general, of course, naturopathic medicine, um, integrative functional medicine, you know, we, we focus a lot on here too. Um, I mean, everyone has, and I probably, you know, uh, haven't uh, named many, many others, but the idea is that we all have something to contribute to the, you know, the, the care of our patients. And I think when we listen really deeply um, and to our patients, but also to our, our colleagues, you know, that might have different expertise than us and might have that different angle at which you might be able to solve that, that mystery that's going on. So that's really great. 
Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. We see that a lot in the uh, integrative medicine programs at GW. The students that we teach are quite diverse. And I think that's part of the reason our discussions are so good because of exactly that. People are bringing different perspectives, different insights, and we end up coming to a much better solution by having everyone together in that group than you would if you just had someone with one or two perspectives. Yes, and as we always say here, it takes a village, you know, and different perspectives. Well, let's start broad with vitamin D. So first of all, what is vitamin D? Is it even a, is, is it even a vitamin? Let's, let's talk about that. <laughs> Great question. So vitamin D is very complicated. Uh, it is a vitamin in the sense that we need to get enough of it to live, um, but our bodies actually make vitamin D and that's kind of unusual. Typically vitamins are ones that we don't make. There are things that you need to get externally, like for instance, vitamin C. While some animals make their own vitamin C, we don't. And so it's vital for us to get in our bodies. Um, but we make it from sun exposure. So that means it's not exactly a vitamin, but it kind of is. Um, but almost more importantly, it's a hormone. And because it's a hormone, it has really broad effects. Um, I like to explain it like if you didn't have enough testosterone in your body, you can imagine there'd be lots of different effects, things that would go wrong um, because you didn't have that hormone. And that's the case with vitamin D. And I think that's maybe somewhat confusing for researchers as well as the lay public. They're like, well, can vitamin D really do all these things? And it's because it's a hormone, it has these really broad effects that it can affect everything from your skin to your immune system, to your bones, to, I mean, really, you name it, there's an effect from vitamin D. So hormones are these chemical messengers that really have what we call pleiotropic effects or different effects in different organs. It, it really does affect, you know, the whole body. And that's why when you do a PubMed, you know, Google Scholar, you see your name up there talking about vitamin D research and many others. And basically we know that you can really take any, any organ system in the body, any system, and you'll see that vitamin D has an effect. Is that right? Correct. That is correct. And some of them are, it's more important than others. You know, we figured out bones pretty quickly because without enough vitamin D, your bones literally soften. So it was easy for us to figure out, okay, here's the link. We've got that one, but a lot of the other ones are a little bit more nuanced. Like it's about um, exactly how the immune system functions. And that can be uh, slightly turned up, slightly turned down. It, it's not maybe quite as obvious as say with bone. What are some of the other primary roles in the body for, for vitamin D and beneficial effects besides bone health? So I like to think of vitamin D as kind of the conductor of a symphony. And so it, within your body, you have various processes going on. Many of them are linked to your immune system and, and vitamin D turns up this one, turns down that one, tells this one, hold on, we don't need you quite yet. Um, and it's, it's, it's really telling them how to do their job. And it does that actually through gene expression, which that's something that maybe people will understand why vitamin D is so broadly effective is it actually changes the way genes are expressed, how much they're expressed, how often they're expressed, or if they're not expressed at all. And it does that by directly binding um, to the promoter region. So it's actually binding to the DNA and changing whether it's expressed or not. Um, so that's what it's doing, right? It's, it's saying, okay, more of you, less of you. And it's making sure that everything's hopefully working correct for the exact point in time. So most of the time it's gonna be homeostasis, it's gonna be balance. Other times you have a pathogen and you need to ramp up inflammation, right? You need that, that infection to be qualled down uh, and it needs to be very quick. Then you also have to turn it off again uh, because we don't want to have chronic inflammation and all of these things, vitamin D has a role to play. 
So that's really huge that vitamin D changes gene expression because as you know, you know, it's not about the gene, it's about the epigenetics, the, the basic expression on that gene. Um, what, what is the optimal level, do you think, of, of vitamin D? Is there research out there to support a certain level or a certain range? And, and then we can talk about how to optimize levels a little bit later. Yeah, so the, the perfect amount of vitamin D is actually hotly debated. Um, and there's a lot of people out there with a lot of opinions, uh, but luckily there is some actual science and research that we can talk about. Um, and what you'll see in a lot of clinical labs, they'll say the, the minimum for vitamin D is 30 or 32 um, nanograms per milliliter. And that is based on pretty good science based on bone health. Um, there's one study in particular that I, I always find really interesting where they looked at autopsies of people who had car accidents. So they died for reasons not due to their health. Uh, and they looked at their bones and their vitamin D status. And they found that if you were less than 32 nanograms per milliliter, there was signs of bone softening, which is, was much higher than we thought prior to that study, even for bone health. So, all right, now we're going to say you have to have at least 32 because we've got studies like that, but those are still based on bone health and the amount that you need for the immune health and some of these more subtle nuanced things is actually higher than for bone health. So when we talk about those, we're thinking at least 40. Sometimes people were talking about 60. There's even some indication that maybe it's 80 or hundred. I mean, we're talking about really high levels. Um, and that's difficult to have a conversation about when you don't have these known factors. But when we look by and large in literature, we, we see that 40 to 60 is generally looking pretty safe. Though that's a good area to be in. Above 60, there may be some benefits, but who knows, there could be some long-term effects that we don't know about. But the one thing that I really like to emphasize with vitamin D is while it's a fat-soluble vitamin, and typically we get scared about too much of fat-soluble vitamins because they're stored in the fat, vitamin D isn't exactly stored in that way. And we actually have four different pathways to eliminate excess vitamin D. So it's hard to overwhelm four different pathways. So I don't get too concerned about having too much vitamin D for that reason. And also when you go outside, you can make 10, 15,000 international units of vitamin D in, in one go really easily, you know, 15 minutes on a peak day with, with in a bathing suit. So now we're talking about delivering large amounts. So when we're, we are giving vitamin D, I don't worry as much about that as I would say with vitamin A there, I'd be really nervous about having too high of a blood concentration or giving too large of a dose of vitamin A. Vitamin D is a little bit more regulated in terms of going too high. So aiming for that 60 might be better than aiming for 40. Got it. Okay. So now that we know we're looking at 40 to 60, let's say, um, how do we optimize levels and absorption of vitamin D? So vitamin D is a fat soluble hormone, which means it is absorbed better with fat. So that's the first thing is if you're going to take a vitamin D supplement, make sure you're having it with fat. In nature, it typically comes with fat, right? So if you're going to have salmon or some other fatty fish, it has vitamin D in it. It also has fat. Those are also the really, the only good vitamin D sources uh, in the diet, because everything else is just really small amounts, even fortified milk. The amount that was 
was added to was determined at the turn of the last century. And it's really kind of an outdated amount. It's, it's very tiny, tiny. It's, a, it's kind of laughable, actually, the amount that's in milk. Um, so that's not really a great source, even though it says it on the package, you know, vitamin D. Um, there is some in eggs. There's also some in irradiated mushrooms, but there's some issues with that, which we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit, when we talk about D2 versus D3. Great. Love it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll shelve that for now. But so generally you're not getting it from your diet or you're, you're not going to get enough from your diet because we were really designed to be outside. Our bodies are designed to be exposed to the sun and the majority of our vitamin D status comes from sun exposure. Now that's not true anymore, right? Most people, you and I right now, we are sitting inside and not making any vitamin D. And if you live in the, the Northern latitudes above 35 degrees North, you're not getting it in the winter, no matter where you are, whether you're inside or outside, you just can't make it because the angle of the sun is not sufficient. So that's when we start to really think about supplements, particularly during the winter for people who you know, are living our modern life and aren't going outside. And one of the nice things about vitamin D, because it is a hormone, supplements actually are a good source. Whereas a lot of things in nutrition, we really want to look to food. It's, it's better to get it in the food matrix. It's healthier to get it with all these other elements. But luckily in this case, that doesn't seem to be the case for vitamin D and delivering it via supplement is a good alternative. And I, even even for those of us, you know, who who have ancestors like near the equator, right, or you know, close in the tropics, um, you know, and then and then we move up, kind of quote unquote north, right, like kind of like we're north of Atlanta, which is I think considered the north in terms of different different seasons. My understanding is there's less vitamin D exposure in in the four seasons that we have here in like the say the DC region, than like if say someone was in in the Philippines or in the tropics somewhere. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, and, I, and I'm glad that you mentioned ancestors because every person's exposure to the UVB radiation is actually different based on the color of their skin because color is by and large determined by melanin and melanin is nature's sunscreen. So people whose ancestors are from the tropics are really designed to have the level of sun exposure that you have in the tropics, which is much higher than you would here. So here's a reason that people who have darker skin tend to be higher risk for vitamin D deficiency, particularly if they've moved someplace north because the, you actually can see in evolutionary history, the reason people got lighter skin was because they had less sun exposure and they needed to have that vitamin D. So the melanin just wasn't as protective as, as it used to be. And our body selected against that in terms of reproduction. So the amount you need depends on where you are, how much sun exposure you're getting, the color of your skin, whether you're taking a supplement or not, what your diet looks like, it's a lot of different things. It's complicated, um, but I have a hack for that. There is actually an app. It's called D-Minder, so D-Minder, and, and was founded by one of the vitamin D experts of the world, Michael Hollick, uh, in, in congruence with Grassroots Health, which is another great source for information about vitamin D. And it helps put all of that information into one spot. And it'll actually take your, your blood lab value. So if you have a lab value that you got from your doctor, you put that in there and then you say, this is what I'm taking in terms of supplements and you can track when you go outside. And it also tell you, hey, you're gonna burn. And you can say, I put sunscreen on and it'll, it'll put that into account and then tell you when you need to put your sunscreen on. It's, it's magic actually, because there's so many things you have to think about and it takes care of all of them. 
So that's my go-to source for optimizing vitamin D uh, because there's just too many little things to think about um, and particularly individualizing them and, and wh where you are when you go on vacation. Now you're in a different location than you are on a regular day. So the amount of sun exposure you're going to get it, plus you're going to go outside because you're on vacation. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So D-Minder. And, and then I was reading recently that, that taking a daily supplement or, or like you said, if you're in the tropics, you know, getting outside daily, you know, safe sun exposure versus like mega doses weekly is ideally better. What are your thoughts about that? Absolutely. It's something that I feel like I've been fighting for a while uh, because there was this big movement and it's, it's very much driven by public health needs. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to deliver a daily treatment. Um, but when you see these large bolus doses, what happens is the rate of activation of the storage form of vitamin D, 25-hydroxy vitamin D, into the active form, 125-dihydroxy vitamin D, is slowed. So as your, if your status is decreasing, the amount that it's activating is slowed. So it's almost like your body thinks it doesn't have enough vitamin D because it's decreasing over time. Whereas if you're giving daily doses, you're kind of maintaining a pretty stable amount of vitamin D in the blood. And so that activation level stays pretty much at optimum. And that's the main reason that daily dosing is better than these bolus doses. But from a human being perspective, it's also better because now you're in the habit right? Every day you're taking this and it's just part of your life and your routine. Whereas if you have to take it monthly or weekly, that can be really difficult. And if you forget, obviously the difference between taking it weekly and every two or three weeks is a bigger difference than, oh, I forgot today. I'll just take it tomorrow. So it's better if, but if people forget, is it better to take a bolus than to not take it at all? Oh, that's a great question. Um, and this actually will get into some of the microbiome things that I want to talk about. Awesome. So yes. The, the amount of vitamin D that we give at any one time has not been well studied uh, in terms of its effects. And what we typically see in terms of vitamin D is we'll get large doses via the skin, right? We're going to go outside. We're going to make a ton of it. No big deal. Our body's used to that. Um, but we don't typically get large doses orally. The most you're going to get is if you're having a fatty fish. Now, let's say you even sit down and have four servings of salmon, which would be a lot. Um, you're only going to probably get 5,000 international units from that which is not a huge dose when we're talking about these bolus doses, many of them are 10, 15, some of them are 100, 200,000 international units. Now think about you're adding that into your gut where typically you're gonna see no more than 5,000. What's going to happen? So what we think about with vitamin D is it's, it's a, an, also an immune homing marker. Vitamin A is one as well. Vitamin A says, I'm the gut. When there's large amounts of vitamin A, it tells the immune system, this is the gut, function like you're in the gut. Vitamin D does the same for the skin, which makes sense, right? We're making all the vitamin D in the skin that tells the immune system, this is the skin. Now you put these large amounts of vitamin D in the gut and the immune system says, oh, okay, this is the skin. And it starts reacting to commensal organisms in the gut that shouldn't be on the skin in negative ways, perhaps. We don't know that for sure. Um, there's some preliminary research showing that um, smaller amounts may be okay. I'm also working on a research study in this area, um, but it's definitely something that concerns me in terms of giving large amounts, at, particularly at any one time. So I also typically will recommend that for your daily doses, optimally, and it may not work for your lifestyle, but optimally take it twice a day because it increases absorption and you're really decreasing any risk of, of giving too much to your gut at any one time. Got it. So I think what you might also be suggesting, at least for, for some of us, is to uh, go to the tropics and get some daily beach time uh, for 
for, for optimal, uh, you know, ways to increase that D. That's great. Let's let's actually dive real quick before we get into microbiome into one of the the, the smaller rabbit holes of, of D2 versus D3. So there's different forms of, of you know, potential supplementation, let's say, uh, ergocalciferol versus uh, colocalciferol. Let's talk about that. Um, which one or ones do you prefer? Do you feel like they're both equivalent? Let's talk about D2 versus D3. So D3 is the kind that your body makes. So when you go outside, that's what it's making D3. D2 is the kind that is produced by plants. So when mushrooms are irradiated, um, they produce D2. And it is similar, but not the same as D3. And it doesn't actually even function exactly the same way as D3, which I think is not something a lot of people know about. Um, while it will bind with the vitamin D receptor, it does so much more weakly. So it's not actually as efficient at, at stimulating the vitamin D receptor or the effects of vitamin D as vitamin D3. So if you're looking at your blood level and you're just looking at total vitamin D, so you're not looking at D2 versus D3, you would say, okay, this person has, let's say, uh, 40 nanograms per milliliter of total vitamin D. But if they're taking a D2 supplement, let's say, the majority of that is actually D2, but that means their blood status is not 40. It's actually lower than that because of the affinity is not the same. Um, so I really would strongly recommend D3 because for one, it's more effective. So you don't have to take as much, but for two, you can actually potentially mask vitamin D deficiency by taking D2 because it's gonna look like you have a higher level than biologically, physiologically you actually have. Yeah, that's a great answer. Th thank you so much for uh, clearing that up. Um, and then when you take vitamin D3 um, as a supplement or you're, you know, making it through your skin, um, what is the role of magnesium and also, also vitamin K2? Those are good questions. And I have to say that is still emerging because it's such a new concept um, that most people didn't even, even five years ago, most people didn't know about that, but it's very clear. And no one who knows nutrition should be surprised by that. Things work together in the world of nutrition. You can't just have one, you have to have them all. And magnesium and K2 are clearly very crucial for the role that vitamin D plays. Just like vitamin D is really crucial for the role that calcium plays. And the amount of phosphorus that you have goes into that equation as well. So it's really, it's, it's the symphony, right? It's getting everything in the right optimal levels. And while most people probably need more magnesium in their life, we're all very stressed out. We can use some more magnesium. K2 is what really concerns me that most people aren't getting because it typically is from ferment, from fermentation. It's produced by bacteria. And historically we would have had a lot of fermented foods in our diet just because it's a way of, of keeping food from going bad, or we would have had food that maybe was, I don't know, a day over what we probably should have eaten. And so there'd be some fermented products going on in there where we don't have that in our life anymore. Most people don't have fermented foods every day. So I'm pretty sure the average person isn't getting enough K2, but we don't even know what the exact right amount of K2 is yet because it's actually a new discovery. We didn't realize it used to be vitamin K and now we realize, oh, there's K1 and K2. Right. We know that K2 can be shown in some studies, I believe it's 360 micrograms to, um, to kind of help with arterial calcification, uh, things like that. Um, what are some good forms of, of I guess, fermented, you know, foods for, for K2, would, would you say? The best one is natto. It's like through the roof. It has, I mean, if you had natto once a week, you would probably be good on, on K2. <laughs> okay. 
So that one, but really anything that's fermented is going to have it. And, and there's so many good reasons to have fermented foods in your life. You know, the gut microbiome, it, some people are calling it a postbiotic. Um, so even if the bacteria are no longer live in there, they're producing um, short chain fatty acids or other off products. Acetic acid is one of the ingredients in vinegar, which is why a lot of fermented foods have this like tartness to them. So essentially it's like taking a postbiotic supplement every time you're yeah. having a fermented product. So maybe you're getting some of those probiotic effects that some of those bacteria are coming in as well. But even if they aren't, you're definitely getting the postbiotics. So daily fermented foods is probably a good idea. Yeah. Got it. I, I, I love the uh, sauerkraut. I'm getting into that. Oh, nice. And you making your yes. own? Uh, no, I'm, I'm getting it from a shout out to uh, Baltimore here. Hex ferments. It's the, the Oh, love hex ferments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Uh, the turmeric version. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think also we can talk about um, the immune system. You know, we are recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic still. We're in year two now of this. How does vitamin D regulate the immune system? And then we'll talk about COVID a bit and getting into microbiome. But um, what are the general ways that vitamin D regulates the immune system? You were saying that it's sort of the conductor of the orchestra turns genes on and off. How does that interplay with our immune systems and keep us strong and healthy? So it does, it does a lot in the immune system. I, I literally wrote a dissertation on this, so we could talk a lot about this, but I think the one great example for your innate, your sort of first line immune system is that vitamin D is actually required to produce antimicrobial peptides. So you, the various different barriers in your body, your skin, your mucosa, so like your lungs, or we're talking about COVID-19 produce antimicrobial peptides, which actually they're like the body's antibiotics. So before we had antibiotics, we had antimicrobial peptides and one in particular cathelicidin or LL37 is directly produced from vitamin D. You cannot produce it without vitamin D. So if you don't have enough vitamin D in your body, you just aren't able to mount this robust innate immune response to that initial exposure. So if you have bacteria exposed to your lungs and there isn't enough of these cathelicidins there or other antimicrobial peptides, uh, you're much more likely to get infected. So that's one role. Now, when we're talking about the an, an adaptive immune system, that secondary immune response, which is when, okay, it already got through the barrier function. Now we have to you know, sound the alarms and, and fight this infection. Uh, vitamin D basically allows the immune system to be ready for that and make sure that there's enough of this, enough of that, and they're there, but they're not overly active. They're just surveilling. They're just looking, um, basically they're, they're the neighborhood watch. Uh, whereas if you didn't have enough vitamin D, there's sort of two ways this can go. One, they can get a little out of hand. They can become, you know, bad cops and they're out there like beating up your own cells, or they could, uh, when you have this pathogen come in, they're lazy. They don't, they don't, they don't have enough energy to get out there and fight that pathogen. And so you have an ineffective immune response, uh, which is not good because then you're not going to be able to clear the pathogen and you're much more likely to have a longer infection. So it's important both in preventing the initial infection and it's important in shortening the duration of infection. And that's what you see over and over again in the literature. If you have enough vitamin D, you're less likely to have an upper respiratory attack infection. Or if you do get it, it's often shorter, not dissimilar from vitamin C. Yeah, thank you. What are the general levels that the studies are using for vitamin D levels and association between that and, and decreased upper respiratory tract infections? 
Those are good questions. Um, and this is actually one of my problems with the way the literature for vitamin D is run is it is done based on dose, which as we were talking about, we really want to optimize your blood concentration, right? We want you to be between 40 to 60. So if you have someone who's at 10, and I wish that was uncommon, but that's relatively common. Uh, someone who's at 10 and you're giving them 2000 versus someone that's at 40 and you're giving 2000, you're going to have a very different response to that. So when you look at the vitamin D literature, actually often it's quite mixed results. And that a lot of it is because of that. You have people who are moving from various different bins. Whereas if you look at the blood level, then you're actually knowing, okay, now they're sufficient in vitamin D and moving them from insufficient to sufficient is much more meaningful than, you know, keeping them in that insufficient range. It's really about getting them to the optimum. Um, so my, my recommendation is, is and, and clinicians hate this answer as I don't recommend a dose. <laughs> I recommend getting to the blood level. Yeah. Um, that being said, it's generally pretty safe to recommend 2000 international units daily for almost anyone. It's a good, safe level. Um, I do recommend checking blood status, particularly at the, the nadir of vitamin D, which is usually um, in the around February to March or even April. So those are optimum times for testing vitamin D. Because you know, that's the, the lowest they're gonna be. And so if they're at 40 at that point, you're good. Cause during the summer, they're probably at 60. Got it. Got it. That, that makes a lot of sense to, to test and, and look at those levels. I have a lot of sub questions from that, but I guess we should uh, dive into that before we get to the next topic. Uh, we know that, you know, based on that famous study from North Carolina, I believe that there's uh, up to 80%, probably more now of people that have metabolic syndrome in our in the US and, and certainly around the world to a lot of people as well. So, and we know that vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. So is it true that vitamin D gets sequestered in the fat? Like we know that like people are taking, maybe, maybe their BMI is really high. They're taking five, 10 K, 10,000 units a day. But then when you check their levels in three months, nothing has happened. Is that just because things are getting sequestered and, and how do you, you know, how do you deal with that basically? So it is absolutely true that uh, the need for vitamin D strongly correlates with BMI. So as the fat mass goes up, the need for vitamin D goes up. And it's it's pretty clear on that. And in fact, there are even some um, manuscripts out there that suggest calculations for how to adjust your dosage based on BMI. Again, I would say that's kind of useless because the whole point is about getting them to this blood level, but it can help you at least think about that. And it, and it does have to do with the fat mass because the fat does sequester vitamin D. And for a while we weren't sure about that, but where we really became sure is when you look at patients who undergo bariatric surgery, a lot of them are deficient in vitamin D before surgery, but sufficient after vitamin D, despite the fact that their intake has decreased, their absorption has decreased. Yeah, got it. But it's because they've lost a lot of fat and it's come out of the fat. It's coming out of it. Got it. That, that, that's and so, so then like one or two years later, when that's no longer happening and they're taking the same amount of vitamin D, now they're going back and becoming deficient again. And all the surgeons were really confused. What's going on? Why are they becoming deficient now? And it's because they were actually releasing their stores when they were losing weight. Is there any danger to that? Like say someone's going on a quote unquote detox or losing losing fat mass, losing visceral fat as they, as they kind of, you know, it's January. So we might be talking about, uh, at least when we're recording this, uh, you know, losing weight, et cetera. So as people lose weight and release that sequestration, is that, is there any danger to that uh, from a, you know, human body perspective? 
Uh, I wouldn't say with vitamin D because we've got those four pathways to eliminate. I really wouldn't yeah. be too concerned about that, but there is a lot of concern about other things coming out of the fat, you know, heavy metals mm-hmm. are fat soluble. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a concern about rapid weight loss. And um, I worked on a study when I was at the Hopkins center for bariatric surgery, looking at just that, seeing if the blood levels of heavy metals and other potential toxins are going up with weight loss. And they did, they went up. Um, so that's something that needs to be monitored with weight loss. And, and yeah. maybe you'll see some of these effects that you weren't seeing prior to, like they lose weight. Now all of a sudden they're having brain fog and perhaps it's because of mercury. Right. So more of a safe gradual de- detox or, you know, a weight loss with some detox program built in. Um, and then let's talk about how vitamin D can be used to prevent COVID-19 or, you know, we, we, we know there's some studies that have come out, I know, from um, different uh, places, different uh, academic places around the world. Now, uh, what is the association between, you know, vitamin D status in terms of blood levels, since that's what we want to talk about here, and, and COVID-19 incident, severity, et cetera? Yeah, there's, so there's a long history of looking at vitamin D and infection status for one. So it's not just like, oh, this came out of the blue vitamin D and COVID. There's been just tons and tons of research looking at upper respiratory infections, tuberculosis. I mean, you name it, there is something in the literature showing a strong correlation between vitamin D status and prevention of infection. So that's why people immediately went there when COVID came out, they're like, here's something we think we can do, right? We could deliver vitamin D and hopefully that'll be a good preventative. And the literature is bearing that out. It shows that people who have a higher vitamin D status are much less likely to become infected. Now, is it as effective as the vaccine? Probably not. But if you're doing both, then you're really good, right? Like you're making sure your immune system has what it needs to respond and you're educating it about what you want it to respond to. So I certainly wouldn't say do one or the other, but that's the great thing about integrative health is we don't ever do that, right? We're about using the best of all worlds and, and, and really optimizing and diet, nutrition, lifestyle, all of that play into this as well, right? You can't be super stressed out and think that you're not going to get COVID too, right? So we needed some time to meditate and recharge. Um, So I think all of those things are important, but that being said, vitamin D is definitely on the top of my list when it comes to nutrients for, for COVID. I think it's one of the most evidence-based um, vitamins in terms of like the research out there with, you know, what to supplement with, you know, there's a whole list of supplements that people are trying to do for COVID-19. That seems to be the most evidence-based. Correct. And part of that's because of that long history of, of other infections and, and no understanding its role in the immune system. Whereas some of the other nutrients, we, we didn't really pay that much attention to them in terms of the immune system. It's, it's really starting to come out. Um, or what we've done hasn't been overly science-based in terms of like, you know, we, we know that zinc is antiviral, but we haven't done a lot of the research behind exactly how much to deliver and how often and all of those things. Yeah. Got, got it. Going back to your comment about how vitamin D helps to uh, synthesize those AMPs, antimicrobial peptides, because it's a peptide, would that mean also that higher protein intake would be helpful to make those peptides or, or how, how important is protein with that? That's a good question. I mean, we don't ever want to have protein malnutrition. That's not, that's not a good thing. But that being said, when the body is in a state of infection or anything urgent, it will rob Peter to pay Paul. So Mm -hmm. if you need to make AMPs and you don't have enough protein, it will take it out of your muscles. Not that that's a good thing. We certainly don't want that, particularly in in the elderly populations where sarcopene is already an issue, Um, but it will do what it has to do to protect you from an infection. Um, But 
better to not have that happen and make sure you're getting enough protein. It, it, it's the, it's the integrative approach again, right? You have sense. to make sure you mm-hmm. have all the building blocks, um, to be health, happy and healthy. And one more thing before we go into microbiome, this is, this is really great. Um, nutrigenomics, and we talk about vitamin D and, and VDR status, vitamin D receptor status. How important is that in terms of, uh, figuring out, you know, A, should people be checking VDR? How, how relevant is that, you know, to public health, I think in general, and then probably just overall clinical health? That's a great question. I don't think that the literature has moved uh, as far on that as I would like it to see, um, particularly in the last few years. I really was expecting more to be coming out and it really hasn't. Um, so I can't really say that it's a, at the public health level for sure. Um, That being said, those of us who are like to be a little bit more on the cutting edge and provide uh, a higher level of care because we have the time and the resources to do that. I think it can be quite informative, particularly if you're having someone who's not responding, you know, they're, you're, you've, given uh, supplements, but you're still having symptoms or their blood level isn't going up or something is just not quite working out. This might be it. Um, that being said, and I say this to my students all the time, if the test isn't going to change what you would do with the patient, the patient care plan, why do the test? Um, particularly if the patients can't afford the test. So obviously That's right. your population depends, um, right. but maybe it will change, right? If you have to think about that, why am I ordering this test? Is it, yeah. am I going to just do the exact same thing? I'm going to just increase. I haven't their found it to be dose. that beneficial yet because a, maybe the science needs to move towards that, but B we can just check serum levels, you know, I think that's more helpful. Um, some people aren't good at following up on getting their blood tests. And so maybe understanding that about them may be helpful. It's definitely, this is where like the clinical judgment comes in, into play. Um, and also knowing your patient, like if this is someone who can't afford an an extra lab, this is definitely not the one to run. Yeah. and, And, and one more thing about lab tests, since we're on that is, is that, do you see any difference between like vitamin D3 serum levels versus like uh, a 125 hydroxy um, D level? And, and how, how important is that at all? So 125 uh, hydroxy is generally pretty well homeostatically regulated. So you shouldn't see large excursions in that unless there's something drastically wrong, which you probably already figured out there was something drastically wrong before you decided to run that test. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't, I wouldn't really recommend that, but the one thing that is really interesting right now in literature is free versus bound uh, 25 vitamin D. Um, mm-hmm. Because if it's bound to a protein, then it can't be bound to the receptor. Uh, and that's, that is starting to show in the literature that looking at free vitamin D may be more meaningful. However, we have hmm. no idea how much of that you should have, right? Cause uh, we didn't okay. look at it before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a whole new thing, but I think that's a really interesting area to keep an eye on. Great. Thank you. And, uh, I know one of your interests is about uh, the gut microbiome and, and how, how much that's so important for health. How does vitamin D interact with the uh, gut microbiome? Or any microbiome, we should say. Any microbiome, yeah. Yeah, So it's a lot of the effects of vitamin D are indirect. Um, Most of the the microbiota in your gut or elsewhere don't have vitamin D receptors. So they are not interacting with the vitamin D directly. What is happening is the vitamin D is interacting with your immune system, with the inflammation in the area, and that's affecting the microbiota. So whether they are being tagged as problematic, whether they are being tagged as commensal and everything's okay, or if, you know, the status of the mucosa isn't healthy. And so you aren't able to, to foster the healthy microbiome that is there. 
that's really where vitamin D shines. And as in almost everything we've talked about so far, it's about having enough of it. Once you you've hit this sort of sweet spot of vitamin D that everything seems to be kind of relatively homeostatic. I can, I can thank you for that. And I can tell you as a clinician and, you know, seen our clinic got thousands of patients, very few people, unless they're like bike riders or ultimate Frisbee players, they're not, they're not, vitamin D is not up to 40 to 60. It's just no, not. So it's not. I agree. You know, and, and vitamin D being a systemic, like you said, anti-inflammatory hormone, immune promoting hormone, but then also one that increases T regulatory cells. So that's going to prevent autoimmunity or at least reduce that. It, it's huge. It's just a huge, uh, you know, a, a basically another, another uh, epidemic or of, um, you know, basically something that I think in public view that people are listening, having low vitamin D is a really big, deal to, to address for your health, you know, for the health of mm-hmm. uh, yourself, your loved ones, you know, all of our community here. Speaking of loved ones, I was horrified to find out recently that my husband is below 30. I, I have had him <laughs> on supplements, he, but he doesn't go to the doctor and get tested. So this is, so this is uh, he needs to go get tested. Yeah. So he yeah. needs to go get tested. So now I've adjusted his supplement regimen and we'll have to go test him again. But, and yeah. this was even um, a couple months ago. So we're not even talking vitamin D nadir yet. So that means at some point he was probably like 20. Has he, has he been taking it every day or he had, you know, he, Prior to this, he was taking a vitamin D supplement every day and he does do a lot of walking and spend time outside. So I was a little surprised by this, but that's exactly why you need to do the test because you can't just have a gestalt. Test don't guess, right? Exactly. There you go. Thank you so much, uh, Lee, for coming on today. We have a few closing questions for uh, all of our guests. So if you don't mind, uh, do you have a morning routine uh, maybe involving vitamin D or not? I don't know. Oh yeah. So I do have a morning routine. I like to, um, have some quiet time before everyone else gets up working in surgery has really been helpful for that. Cause I'm definitely an early morning person. So I like to have that quiet to really concentrate and, and get some of the things done that I, I really need some concentration on like writing those type of things. Um, and then after I've spent some time doing that, I, I spend 20 minutes every day and meditate, uh, which has, been actually transformational for me. And surprisingly, because I'm a, a yogini of tw- over 25 years. So I felt like I had that kind of covered the mind body portion, but even on top of that, I've added that with COVID and really the meditation has been, has been huge for me. So I would recommend yeah. that even if you think you've got it under control, try adding a little bit more. Yeah. None of us do. It's all, it's all definitely, especially now, this is the best time. Um, we all need yeah. lots of meditation. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree. What book or podcast are you enjoying the most right now? And what is it about that? And why are you enjoying it? So I love the podcast segment nutrition. It's one of my absolute favorites and um, it's, it's accessible to the lay public, but it's really definitely more geared towards clinicians and researchers. And I like how they really, they have a a critical thought process and they explain it. Uh, Where sometimes you have people just like spouting off facts. I think that's really common for clinicians to be educated that way. Here's a bunch of facts and you don't understand the rationale behind it. Where is this podcast, they really dive into that. And I, I find that informative myself, but I also use it a lot with my students too, because I think it's really helpful for them to have that background. So I would recommend that. I actually was recently on it talking about vitamin D too. Nice. Check that out. Sigma nutrition. Thank you. And what do you do every day to cultivate joy besides uh, yoga practice meditation? 
So I've tried to be obviously very mindful in general, but particularly mindful when I have time to spend with my loved ones. I have my husband and I have three cats. And uh, something else I started with COVID is when now that I work at home full-time, whenever my cats come to visit me, I try to give them some attention. Instead of being like, I'm busy, you know, I'm writing, I have to do this. Just give them, you know, little pats and it's good for them. It's good for me. Same thing with my husband. If he pops by, I try to give him a couple minutes and we chat, you know, like you would if someone stepped by your office. Yeah. Uh, and that's been really helpful to give me a little bit more of that work-life integration. That's great. Now you have three cats. Do they all get along with each other or? Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> they have their moments, but yeah, it sounds like they're just like people, right? Just like people. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Frame, for coming on today. It's been a really enlightening conversation about vitamin D and all the wonders of, you know, how it can help our health. How can listeners learn more about you and, and um, learn more about your research? And I think maybe talk about the program at GW too. Yeah, definitely. So I'm a big Twitter fan. I'm at PhD underscore Lee, L-E-I-G-H. Love Twitter. Um, I actually use it personally to keep up with the science. It's a great way to do that. Um, We also have the GW Integrative Medicine podcast, so I have to recommend that. And then, of course, all the wonderful things we're trying to do at GW Integrative Medicine. We have the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. Uh, We have a website, a newsletter. We try to get as much information out to people to be helpful as possible. And then we have a Friday event every Friday called a Mindfulness Experience, where we arm you with information at the beginning about health, a lot about COVID right now too. And then in the last 30 minutes, it's all mind-body practice to give you some release for the weekend, but also... Um, make it easier when you need to practice on your own. You know, if you're having a peak time of, of stress, you have some tools in your toolbox. I really appreciate all that. And GW Integrative is an amazing place. I look forward to working with you more, collaborating with you more. And certainly uh, the AIM uh, meetings are great. I've definitely been on a couple of those. So thank you, Dr. Dr. Thank, thank you, Lee. And uh, look forward to keeping in touch here this year, 2022 the year of resilience and recovery here, hopefully. For oh, all I love that stuff. theme. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, taking the time to listen today. And if you enjoy this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast reach more listeners. And check out GW's podcast as well. They're really amazing here. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>